Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we welcome Ethiopian-born, New York-based Julie Maratu back to the program. Maratu is debuting new work at New York's Marion Goodman Gallery tonight. Her show there is on view through October 29th. Her work has been featured in solo exhibitions at museums such as the Deutsche Guggenheim Berlin, the Walker Art Center, and the Detroit Institute of Arts. This past summer, Maratu had her first exhibition in her native Ethiopia at the Modern Art Museum Gebre Christos Desta Center in Addis Ababa. Next year, a European survey of Maratu's work opens in Portugal and will travel to Spain, and she'll create a large-scale commission for SFMOMA. Julie Maratu, after the break. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. Laffer Art Museum presents the first major U.S. museum exhibition for Matthew Ronay, June 4th through October 1st. Although Ronay has a form of colorblindness, his handcrafted sculptures, installations, and reliefs combine vivid hues from across the spectrum that seem to vibrate and hum. From June 4th through September 10th, Hilary Lloyd presents video installations, objects, and architectural interventions created specifically for Blaffer's galleries. More at blafferartmuseum.org. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore the charming mystery of an artist's dog who shows up in several manuscripts. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day by subscribing to the Iris and receiving an email whenever there is a new post. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu iris. And we're back. Julie Maratu, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here again and to speak to you again, Tyler. We're taping at your gallery when we both kind of just walked through the paintings that you are debuting in the United States. I guess one or two or three will have been on, on, on view elsewhere. This body of work, paintings made in the last couple of years, may be as far as you've gotten away from architecture or at least the presentation of architectural space in a long while. And I don't want to speak too broadly here. But there is virtually no suggestion of a building or a civic space or architected environment in these paintings. Why'd you toss it out? Interesting question, because, I mean, it's a, clearly a, de- a decision that I made, especially with this new, to, for this show, because I do have some paintings in the studio that mm-hmm. did have some architectural language in them. But I didn't want to, a lot of the new work since 2012, I started to... I guess what happened, there was a moment where everything felt like it was falling apart in terms of the kind, the, the spirit, if, like after, maybe after the Arab Spring and after the big, my last show here, like after that. Last that, show was 2013. Show, 2013, yeah. So around that time, there was, a, there was a language that was emerging in those paintings where it wasn't so much about the marks on their own kind of protesting the within this landscape, the built environment in a way, the marks started to become the contagion inside of this, of the architectural, and it was bits of architectural parts that, and so, but what ended up becoming like those bits, because they were taken from ruins, they, they lived on their own in a way with the arch- with the, with the marks and became something else. And somehow I became more interested in what the marks were doing in the gestural aspect of how they existed. And, and at the same time, the the failure of the projects that felt somewhat 
exciting, but I was very skeptical of that. That's why maybe the show was titled Liminal Squared. By the projects, you mean the democracy, the, the, the hopes of yeah, a the, region. The, yeah, the, especially the Arab African Spring, the kind of, and the, and the protests that took place all over the world, Brazil, I mean, the U.S., everywhere. You had this jet, this intense kind of effort of, of social movement, but it, in many ways, it, felt like it replicated or copied a past pattern, past social pattern, a historic way of behaving to gain a type of social change. But by, by going into the square to protest, what ended up happening and what ended up looking back five years later since the, let's say, the uprising in Egypt, Tahrir Square, you really see the bottoming out of that and maybe the complete co-option of that revolution by either the Muslim Brotherhood or by the, the army, one or the other, or which you could say then is the state. So... In a way, these were not failures, but kind of bottoming out of those. Really, in some ways, there's a place of like, I felt like in the studio, I went into a place after that, after, after my show here of almost retreat into the, into the space where what I was most interested in was the gesture and the mark and what was happening in the paintings and where the paintings were going. But that place of the paintings, the, the mark having to struggle with that felt like, I needed to break away from that. And only this morning, after reading the text that Glenn Ligon has written for the, for the book that's going to be made about, about all these gray paintings, of which there's some here in this show and there's some that precede this show, he talks about metaphor and analogy. And he's actually referring to someone else's thinking around it. But he talks about how metaphor works in a way where where in, and I was thinking with the architectural paintings, the architectural language actually worked as that type of metaphor. And in this case, they're source images that inform this work. They're images that are photographs that are blurred and then drawn upon. So they, but they become, these paintings become a type, they become, they offer a different type of analogy of that light from those photographs informs these paintings and the gesture interacts with them. And there's much more of a democracy between those. So they become this other state. This other conversation around painting in that way and abstraction. And in the end, they're really the insistence on making in a moment that is completely, in so many ways, feels so dismal. And I mean that in terms of like, there's, there are aspects of this moment that aren't. And, you know, there's much to like daily be amazed by in the world. Like, I mean, but I mean in terms politically and and where where I feel we are politically, not just in the United States, Europe, globally, it's a it's a there's a there's a re, there's a scary kind of resurgence of a nationalistic right wing kind of dynamic that's terrifying. But also outside of just those, I mean, what's taking place with ISIS? This is this there's scary stuff that's going on, and how it's affecting not just the not just us here, but how it's affecting many places, like including. Ethiopia, where I'm from, but other other countries that have never had to deal with this kind of these kind of um, radical kinds of thinking, how that's affecting those cultures is crazy too to me. We're going to talk about Ethiopia in a bit. In the 2013 show, lots of Tahrir Square built environment, and like you said, kind of hanging modernity and its promise and hopes for specific places on that modernity, using it as, as a reference and a metaphor kind of modernity as emerging around the built structure. And in these paintings, they're built around something else entirely. And feel free to shoot this down. But to me, it feels like they are built around a swirl of the emotion that is contained within the paintings. And you just talked about some of that source material. And then the feeling I get out of them is is chaos, is that is that it's a bad, bad time. Emotion I wonder about because, but I know that that's a part of what's making these paintings, but I feel that they are, that I was working, first, they were much, the, the Invisible Sun series, there's eight of those paintings, and they, there was one that was actually in my show in 2013, and then the rest came after. And those paintings, there's one that's in this show that, that I made last year, and that's probably one of the earlier paintings that is sets the, maybe the context of the rest of the paintings that come out of the show. But what happens with the with the Invisible Sun paintings 
and with with mark making in those paintings really the marks felt like the they 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 took off from the previous paintings from that built environment and they became in many ways they they were agents that were shifting into writing questioning writing questioning the built space they created a space almost like a forest at times almost like an urban wall you could see all of these in in and the way that the format of those paintings was a little more landscape oriented than the than the paintings that are here in the north gallery in the show these are a little bit more square. Let me quickly fill in for, for listeners. We'll have images of these on these, these paintings on manpodcast.com. When Julie says language, I think you quite literally mean letters. I mean, there are letters. It feels in, like there are letters. Yeah, there the, are the, letters. The, the, the mark making yeah. actually becomes to, it starts to look like yeah. letters and glyphs and. You, you feel like you can almost read them, but then they become illegible, and then you yeah, they're feel- not legible letters. Yeah, they're not legible words. Yeah, but they're you know, I'm sure I found letters. <laughs> and then <laughs> and there and there are suggestions of, of it disembodied parts, and there are elements of figuration and other elements that confuse the kind of interaction that, that these marks had. This very there was this the the space you're right in these in in a sense like yes. They're not like the earlier paintings where the architectural drawing gave such a distance, like you were looking across through space. These are in, you're in them. And in a sense, somebody used, a friend of mine referred to, in a text referred to an image I sent him of one of the paintings as the double zoom cut or jump zoom cut. Is that what is used in, in film when you, when, and, and that, and it feels that way. Like it's something that you're seeing. There's a cinematic kind of sense to the, to the, to the painting, but, Especially the Stelae paintings, which are the four paintings in the North Gallery with the Invisible Sun. There's that sense. And this painting as well, which is called Conjured Parts Syria. You have actually two paintings that were, that I decided to join together as one painting. And the marks, in, in a way, the marks of the entire, of that entire room in the South Gallery come into this kind of, in a sense, swallowed in this painting and then become this other. But in a way, I feel like it's about law. They're, they're really, to me, they're about mining language and the insistence of creating in this moment with the blurred photographs that inform each painting. And they're, they're a big part of the new work, although they only inform the painting in terms of light, space, like the kind of possible space that can happen. And they, and they suggest almost like an urgent, that, that, that light and space become part of the, are, are really inform how you interact with the painting and that kind of the time-based experience you have with it. But it becomes... The gesture becomes really, it takes place within that, like on that. And somehow that moment of where the photograph was and the, and, and the painted image and the gesture and abstraction on top of that, they become flattened in a way that where it's hard to articulate in language. <laughs> like are, in, are the photos black and white or color? Both. Some are black and white, mm-hmm. some are color. It depends on the painting. But it, for example, in this painting, Conjured Part Syria, this is, this is in color. Both, both, both images were colored photographs that were then blurred in Photoshop. I think we'll find ourselves talking about color before too long, but let's broaden out a bit. You have for, you know, much of your career, maybe all of it, used abstraction as a way to address or engage with contemporary geopolitical, sociopolitical issues and events. I don't think that for somebody with those interests that abstraction is maybe where you're taught to go in art school. What or who, whether it was people you knew or, or work you know, gave you permission to use abstraction to address sociopolitics and geopolitics? <clears throat> That's a complicated question because I don't know that it was from other artists. I mean, it was other mm-hmm. artists whose work I really appreciated and whose work I was really excited by and responded to. And as a person who just looked a lot, it was work that I engaged with and you know, I, I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, where the university really had some fantastic Morris Lewis paintings. And that, you know, the stained paintings, right? Yes. Yes. I see them here. You see them where? In the paint, in these really? paintings. Yeah. There's, there's a, I, I there were just those, we'll talk about the color a little bit as we go along, but, but so I mean, I there's was, a suggestion Those are those, of, are those er, and I, and, and that's just because of the, you have exposure, but that's what they had. They didn't have very much and they had some of these and. They've always been, they've always, like, I've always been interested in Morris Lewis because of those paintings. To like Morris Lewis, you have to be comfortable as a viewer with artificially introduced color that doesn't seem to make sense, but somehow works. Yeah. And, the, and, and there's the something stain, about that here. Yeah. So, and I was always like really interested in, in whenever we went to see different work, I was, I was 
always interested in what abstract painting and was very attracted to it. And I think that informs so much of who you are and how you make as a young as a young artist. But also more than anything, actually, the early when I was a younger artist, I never worked abstractly. I always worked, painted, you know, in, in very different ways. But what ended up happening is the, is the a lot of the complexity of, of ideas of myself and who I was and trying to negotiate that and being able to deal with some of the content that I wanted to deal with in a very kind of, not in a didactic way, abstraction seemed to be the language where I could mm. do that the most. Because mm. nothing seemed, everything else seemed too definitive. Like any, any and, and even though there's a lot of, elements in the work that you could say are not abstracted like or, or that totally. don't really for me it, that was the way that you could actually suggest something or deal with the incomprehensible or deal with difficult complicated realities that you couldn't kind of so you couldn't de- so you could deal with two sides of the coin at the same time somehow in abstraction and not to say because i actually think some of the most compelling paintings are paintings that like you know Bacon, I think, has made some amazing paintings that, he, you know, he's not, those aren't necessarily abstract paintings, but there's many I can think of that can actually do something. Although that, he puts figures in abstract space. That's true. In a, in a very plainly, clearly abstracted. Yeah. Where they get some of the... Power. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, or that question, that capability of being, but I, but okay, but you can go back into like Renaissance painting and you can see certain paintings that really can deal with both sides of the coin at the same time. Like that's, you know... So I feel like I don't like to be too limiting about what figuration or, you know, non-abstract work can do. But I really think, like, for me, what I, in dealing with a lot of, because it doesn't matter what the politics were, they were always complicated. And to be able to not talk about something in a way that was didactic, to be able to try and make something that could deal with these issues and their complexities on on many different levels. That's always been really important to me. And one of the reasons I was like really drawn to abstraction. Just to interrupt myself, because I don't want to make it seem like I'm also only interested in abstraction because of that. It was also because as an artist, it's the language that I felt like most at home in kind of working as well, like and attracted to for that. Like, I think that's important. The ground has been earned. The ground had been earned by the two previous generations so you didn't have to create abstraction out of whole cloth. There yeah. was something you could exactly, yeah, and that sit there's down in. exactly, and that there and and that there was something in that that was really exciting, yeah, or it's something further to invent and investigate. Off tape, we have talked in the past about an artist who I think is really crucial in that I think he gets a lot of credit or should get a lot of credit for bringing socio-political content into American abstraction, and that's Norman Lewis. In the year or two you were working on these paintings, there was an absolutely terrific Norman Lewis show, and if anything, an even better book by Ruth Fine. Was was Lewis important to you? Were you thinking about him either as you know a grad student or something, or more recently with you the know, show? You know, it's interesting because I wasn't, but that's not because I shouldn't have been. Or I think it really was because of an when I was a grad student or when I was younger, I didn't I didn't know the work so well. No one and, did. I mean, and, it was and just it really, so it, Yeah, it's bar- and that's embarrassment, like for the work and for the history and for and the reality that that happened and that many other and many other abstracts. Like so I feel like as I've studied painting and studied the form that you, that I've I've kind of dug out for myself so many but then you just think how is this how is this this big like vacuum in my there there's a reason Yeah there's a real reason for it but it's, it's also called racism <laughs> Yeah really and it's uh, and it's very but also I fu- I get frustrated with myself for not having been as rigorous than but, but what can you do? I mean, yeah. if the images aren't out there, yeah. how do you know what the stuff looks like if, say, three years ago you Google Norman Lewis and you get the same four paintings, yeah. which is what would have happened if you yeah. had, you know, I mean. But I am I was so happy for that show, and I think Ruth did something amazing with that. Extraordinary. And extraordinary. And, and his work and his estate, is it's, an, it's, an imp- it's important that it gets taken care of properly from now on. And, and I think that even recently, the show that Leah Dickerman she did with at MoMA of the um, Jacob Lawrence show, 
and bringing those panels back together. And even looking at those, because as somebody, and, and I had been actually looking at that work earlier for a different reason. And you look at those and you can go back to Poussin and you can go back to early important like gestures and abstraction. And he, he was looking at not like he was looking at many f- forms, I think, but that, but to, to see that again, to see that these were being made in, in, in a very considered way and to give them that credit and be able to like look at them in that rather than just as this kind of outsider artist <laughs> making yeah. that, that to me was interesting about how they were shown and seeing the way the color moved through them very similarly to the way a yellow robe moves through a, a Poussin cycle of paintings. And there was a certain time in American history when a black artist was called an outsider artist, whether he or she was or not. You know, Horace Pippin, same story, right? Yeah. So, this group of work has many, 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 many fewer stenciled lines than the last 15 years worth of your work. There are a couple paintings where there are a bunch, and there are a bunch of paintings where there aren't any, maybe one. What happened to the stencil lines? Why'd they go away? Again, I think for, for, for me, those lines and those marks were a lot about the map or that the rationalist kind of effort to, to some way to put some of that language into the paintings. like Rooted in the architectural, you mean? Yeah, rooted in the architectural, or, and, and, and especially the, the, the effort of mapping and and in that, the Cartesian, like mm, that, that, that side of thinking and trying to make sense of like, so in the same way that we try and map weather, like that, that, so the, so, but, but in this work, I feel like the few times it comes in is when, when there's a schism, like you, like a, a, a hand-drawn mark all of a sudden really becomes very solid. And there, those are the times you'll see the stenciled mark. And so it almost moves into that, into that place of the digitized, but then it comes really back to the, and it's it's digital in the way that it could be in action in film. It's not the Cartesian. It's not dealing with mapping. It's not de- so. It's, so in a way, they you know these these paintings really are 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 almost like events. But they just so when you do see that mark, or when in, in the few times you do see it, it's in this painting, and it you really there is one painting in particular. Stela one new new being nu it's from 2016 we'll have an image of it where the, just to quote one example there is a stenciled l yeah lines at a right angle but it's not trying to be an l and nearby you have in spray paint or ink made a similar mark that is much looser much less rigorous much less of a 90 degree ish angle and I think that's where I get some of the chaos I get out of these paintings. So there, for me, all these pa- these these different images start to come out of this of these mark of this of the painting, and you can see sometimes this aspect of parts of body parts. I said that earlier, but disfigured. I mean, disembodied parts. So maybe a section of a hand, a thumb, part of an arm, part of an elbow. You'll see certain things sometimes and then the more you look sometimes they come and then they disappear and sometimes you can't let go of them once you've seen them this is very gustiny yeah in a way like and i think and i noticed that like even there's a painting in the north viewing gallery that's called conjured part heads that really made me think of gustin when i finished it and then it wasn't until later that i started to started to think about you know this this context of of this moment and what those how those parts could participate in this language i mean Generally, you look look at images and you look for that can happen. You can see things like that, but that one especially made me feel that way. And but anyway, so what you're talking about, yeah, that that chaos. But it's almost like the glitch, like when you're looking at an image, or you're looking at a photograph, or you're skyping with someone, or FaceTiming, and then all of a sudden you can't, you don't have a good signal, and it yep. it holds it, it blurs it, and sometimes you'll see the corner of the pixel. Like that happens in these somehow. There's that language in these that those glitches come forward. And then there are moments where is that an arm? And then is it and is it reaching down from like and grabbing something? Like things start to happen. You almost see social like an action happening, but then it's being it's happening by a giant. And then like they fall back into the landscape. So they they unravel. They become something and then unravel at the same time. There's a little bit of Christopher Wool in that move too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Albert Olin and yes, you know, and Olin totally yeah, Olin. And a lot of painters that I really admire and looked at for a long time but yeah these are there's also a frenetic urgent kind of freneticness to these paintings in a way 
the building block of your painting has long been the layering of stuff on top of stuff, if you will, paintings and layers. And sometimes that stuff is a line or a color-filled shape or kind of inky smoke or whatever. Did you start layering things on top of other things as a metaphor for history? Think of the way Rome is built upon the previous Rome and how you, know, you excavate and we can access those previous layers. Or did it start more as a formal technique to give your paintings complication and depth, say? It's interesting because the earliest, the reason I started to layer one on top of the other was to layer one drawing over another where you could actually look through the, uh, the transparent like layer yeah, yeah. And, and, and paint to mimic layer vellum so that you could actually see the tectonics grow and so that in the in the in the way that you describe Rome to actually be able to see the language evolve and change and then that all of those layers inform the final image which are then there it's not just tabula rasa it actually has these various informed history building up the language of the painting and then I started to use all of the architectural language to t- take that space and re- rethink space I think what ha- what in these in some ways there's there some of them are very very immediate but yes. what happens now is the I think the the marks if they get erased if they get sanded back the next mark comes on top there's still this sense of in some of them of deep space of layered space but I think now it's become part of my language of intuitive language of making that I don't see one mark without not not in just on the surface on its own it, there it exists in that in that deeper space, if you will, even if it's the space of a, a millimeter of the of the canvas, you know, the depth of the canvas. But I think that at the beginning, conceptually, it was an important direction, but then it be or an important step. But then it became really part of the intuitive language and way of making that. So the juxtaposition of image became part of the way the way that I started to understand mark making, and 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 the image, the development of the image. I think one of the ways this body of work gets at some of that layering is your use of color. When we talked in 2013, you talked about how you were looking for ways to get more color into the work without it necessarily being kind of stencilly as it had been, say, in the early mm. 20-aughts or whatever we call that decade. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking of a painting from this year like Conjured Parts Eye, which has these wild, I mean, this is in, in, in the best possible way, toxic pink and green that coexist and feel like they aren't next to each other, but they're above and beyond and through and on top of each other. The way they work in the painting for me is they, they kind of add to that feeling of, 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 of chaos. They don't, I didn't think of tear gas until just now, but I could probably read that into them if I was standing in front of them. So the colors in this show are kind of shocking and, and toxic and kind of maybe out of like Lady Pink's palette from 1982 or something. <laughs> Why these colors? Where? How did you okay. get to these colors? So there are different, different paintings have different, but this painting, and, I'll, and I'm going to just say what the source image was, not because it's what the painting is about, but just as part of what, what informs the light that comes into this painting. This was from a Ferguson riot image. And so the photo was of the police, the lights, the bright lights burning, and then and and what ended up happening in the photograph when the photograph was blurred, and then the blurred photograph in black and white was airbrushed onto cam onto the canvas, and then that I started to work into, and a lot of that got painted over and and disappeared in the mark making and the layering of the image and the abstraction of of my work over it. You lose most of the original image, but what comes through and if informs the image is the light, the white in the painting, and where the light is radiating from inside. So that still stays somehow. Now that you say it, I can totally see it. I mean, when, when, when people go to manpodcast.com and look at this image. There, it, so it, it's it there be, in a way, but it, 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 the original photo and the original image yeah, is not really, the really lost. It's yeah, really not the gone. the figuration of the original photo, but that sense of light and what Yeah, and Ferguson so then the, what, like. what I put the yeah. color and how I started working with the color, the color really came intuitively. And, and really these paintings are very different in that way. Like I really worked with the image, certain images, but they're really about how to keep painting during this, during this moment. And... And and in that, there's a different aspect of the practice where I've started to make different shifts and make different paintings that that surprise me or stop me. And then that's when you, when when a painting can stop you dead in the tracks when you've made it. And then 
you don't know where that came from in a way. Like a lot of this work, I kept trying to push that, that experience in the studio more and more. So with this painting, that even happened with the color. This was a much more gray and white, black and white painting from the, at the beginning. It had those. And then, and then the shift when I, when it went too far in what particular direction, it just looked so dark. And that, that light that was coming through originally that seemed really like the painting was emanating light from inside. Then I started to like work with that. And, so a lot of the mark making, but especially the color and what happens in that painting come from that or, or, or a response maybe in abstraction to that. So that's, again, that part of trying to paint something that is about dealing with the, what you can't talk about, what is in, indescribable in language. It, and in a way, that's maybe where there's that. Some of those colors are Norman Lewis, too. Those greens and pinks <laughs> that he uses together. I mean, yeah. with orange for him. Yeah, um, and there's also. a little and orange in this. Yeah. Like no, there a is. sunset there is. of bright orange. So, And then there's another painting that has a very different color. Those colors are informed from the blur from the original photograph. It, with the blur in that photograph, rather than taking it to black and white, it's, in, it, it's blurred in color. And so what was a green tree blurs into a green thing that mm. if there's an orange brick building that green and orange blur into one another and that's what you see so the forms the kind of modulated forms are an image of a destroyed street in damascus you'll see that in the in that creates and so the area of the most light is usually the part of the building that was the most destroyed where there's vacant space and the light is coming through in the photo my guest is julie maritu we'll be right back after a break The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University presents Southern Accent, Seeking the American South in Contemporary Art, an exhibition that questions and explores the complex and contested space of the American South. This unprecedented exhibition takes on Southern identity as an open-ended question and reframes the way we look at the South in contemporary art. Southern Accent encompasses a broad spectrum of media and approaches from both within and outside the region, demonstrating that Southernness is more of a shared sensibility than a consistent culture. Southern Accent includes work by 60 artists focusing on contemporary work from the past 30 years. It includes earlier work dating back to the 1950s as important foundational and historical markers. Opening September 1st at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Visit nasher.duke.edu. After a major three-year expansion, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SF MoMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents In Real Life, 100 Days of Film and Performance. Now through January, head to the Hammer to see four month-long film exhibitions, public rehearsals in the museum's courtyard, and 15 weekends of performances by artists including Trajal Harrell, Dan Levinson, Mutant Salon, Jennifer Moon and Laub, Allison O'Daniel, Janine Olison, Laura Schnitger, Simon Lee, Simon Lung, and more. The four month-long film exhibitions include seven short films examining crisis and technology from Artists Film International, Echo, the videos of One Otrix, Point, Never, and related works, How to Love a Watermelon Woman, featuring the films of Cheryl Dunier, and The Workshop Years, Black British Film and Video after 1981. Find a schedule and details for In Real Life at hammer.ucla.edu. Hammer Museum, free for good. And now back to my conversation with Julie Maritou. So we're talking now, and three years ago when we talked, we, we talked a lot about Africa, especially about the Arab Spring, Tahrir, we talked about Africa without really talking about Africa, without really detailing your engagement with the continent, which I, I, in listening to that show again recently, I found myself regretting. Just a few months ago, and in fact, it just closed a couple weeks ago, the Modern Art Museum Gebra Christos Desta Center in Ethiopia opened an exhibition of your work, 17 paintings spanning several decades of your career. So I want to talk about Africa a bit. You were born in Ethiopia in Addis. How long 
Did your family stay there after you were born? Until I was almost seven. So you have memories, probably. In, yeah, yeah, many memories, and it was the, my, the formative years. Of, you know, it was really before moving to Michigan, where that was really the shift. It was that was the moment where coming of age moment, <laughs> the, the loss of innocence. The so, age, so know. what do you remember about Addis? Yeah, I remember the school I went to, my elementary, my nursery school, the elementary school, my first year of elementary school. I, I remember being with my cousins. I remember my grandparents' house. Both my grandparents' houses, they didn't live, they were separated, they didn't live together. I remember my house, the house that I grew up in, and then the house we moved into, which we ended up, which we moved into just shortly after we left, that my parents had built. I remember a lot. I remember a lot about the city, certain monuments, buildings, certain, the feeling of it, the, you know. And then when we went back, a lot of other memories come back, but those are early memories. Did you Playing go, friends, cousins. Did you go back growing up or into no. adulthood, or did you only? Was this your first time going back? No, no. But show? we went How back. Did... I went back. My parents were able to go back for the first, like, because we, we we left, and then during the Derg years, Mangustu years, we couldn't go back, and so we didn't go back until 1992, which is about when you no, started. No, no, no. 1992 was the second. That's when my parents, I think, first went back, or 93, and then we went back in 2000 or. Yeah, 2000 for the first time with, with, with my parents. And it took a while for things to be able to feel good enough for us to go back. No, and the trip in 2000 was a big kind of big trip for our family. My, me, my brother, my sister, and my parents went back together. And then again in, in, in subsequent years after that. So it wasn't in 1992. It was, yeah, it was in 1992. Do you think the dark left or the second revolution that took the, where the current government is from came in 1992? Did going back for the first time as an adult make it into the work? I must have, but more probably in ways about how I, I think being Ethiopian and that early question you asked me about abstraction, having an Ethiopian father or an American mother, having grown up with a, in a very specific kind of Ethiopian culture, but a very open, early modernist, you know, Ethiopia, like I think of the, the modernization of the continent and, the, you know, the decolonization of the continent as this huge modernist effort and taking place. And my parents were part of that generation. They, they were the ones who came back, who were committed to building a different country, and that fell apart. And so that that negotiation of, you know, my mother being an American, taking an American back to the to back to Addis and living there and having a family, a mixed race family in Ethiopia, that itself was a big step. It was two years after anti-miscegenation laws in this country. So it was just, you know, it was really like, yeah, wow. you know, it was 1970, 1969, yeah. of get, they got together. It's really like, you know, they met in D.C. So you can imagine that moment. It's a very different reality. And so... In many ways, but still, you're raised in. I was raised in Addis, and really, like culturally Ethiopian. And then the adjustment of coming to the United States and having to recalibrate who you are. And children do that very fast. And especially because I spoke English well, my mother always spoke to us in English, um, wanted us to have English. So you, I, I, you know, I recalibrated very quickly. And I've, and so that that aspect of trying to see both sides at once was always a cultural negotiation. I always mm. was doing that from a very, very mm. young age. And politically and culturally, you're like that trans that effort of translating or renegotiating. That was always you it wasn't one or the other. So living that way, I think has always been a big part of like, that's been informative of how I work too. What was the germ of getting the show in Addis done or to, for it to happen? So the curator, Doug Maui Wubshet, is professor of English at Cornell. And he actually reached out to me for an interview we did together a couple of years ago for Callaloo magazine. They were doing a pro And he is a, he's also a writer and a novelist. He's working on his first novel. But he really, he wanted to, he's a, he's a gay Ethiopian who wanted to, we, we had this really interesting conversation, and then he was going for a sabbatical to do work in Ethiopia, and he wanted to, we, we connected really well, and he said, you know, one of the projects I want to do, I'm going to be in residence here and doing working with this museum, and I want to curate a show of your work. And I have been wanting to do a project in Ethiopia for a long time. I mean, it, the idea has come up, but the question was how, because... I have to get a good amount of work there unless I did something there. And that was an idea. But with him, one of the ideas, I have kept a lot of work through the years. And so this show is my work and 
my collection that I've kept of my work. And a lot of that was going to Belgium for a show I was working on, I did with Jessica. And so in doing that show, we were able to, I was able to get a good amount of that work from those, and that show was, in my, was my own work. So we were able to, the, the museum there helped in getting the work to Ethiopia. And he, Dagmawit, and the director, Elizabeth Georges, of the museum were really able to, with the help of the American embassy, raise the money to bring the work, which that was the big, you know, being able to bring the work and logistically handle that, that's a feat, and be able to host it. And they did a fantastic job. And Although the Ethiopian press reported that you put up some of the price of getting the work there. I did um, what? That you paid for some of getting the work there. The, the Marion Goodman came in to help. Suggesting it was enough of a priority. And apparently either you or she leaned on an insurance company too, according to the Ethiopian media. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the insurance company actually came... Was, was very concerned about ensuring any of the work going to Ethiopia until they met. And then one of the, one of the brokers met with me and in, in Belgium. And it was really the museum there, the Museum Don't Dance in, in just outside of Brussels that they really, in, they, outside of Ghent really, they really talked to the insurance broker and they were able to like, he was, he was convinced. I think I just told him it's my work and I'm trusting my work to go there. So please insure it. Yeah. <laughs> And it wasn't on a red list. <laughs> a few years ago, we had Via Selman's on the show, and it was just before she was going to have her first ever show in Latvia, in Riga, the country she in which she had grown up, the country she left for the United States during the Nazi era. And she talked on our show about how nervous she was about that, not about going back to Latvia because she she'd done that as a human, as a person before, but how she felt that Latvia didn't have context for her work or the life she had lived since she left, and that she was very nervous about how she and the work would be received, given that, I mean, you know, at first it wasn't her choice not to be there, but ultimately she, she stayed here and made work that was rooted in in Being here. in the West, yeah. whether that's America or Europe. Did you have any of those same thoughts? It's interesting. I didn't, I don't, I didn't feel nervous I felt I was really excited about it, but I was, it was, it was really profound, the experience of being able to engage with Ethiopia and with an Ethiopian audience as me, an individual who's also an artist. I've always been like, like I'm very clearly, I don't speak Amharic anymore, even though it was my first language. When I go back to Ethiopia, I'm very clearly not from there. It's not, I mean, I'm, I'm very much from there, and I'm t but I'm also very much an American when I'm there. And I have both. I have my grandmother who, like, holds me, you know, who held me until she passed away, like, as close as she could when she would see me and, adore, and was very loving. But at the same time, you know, there became a point where we couldn't communicate because she mm -hmm. only spoke Amharic and I spoke English. And I used to speak, my Amharic disappeared, and I used to, it was a language, it was, like I said, it was my first language. I used to be able to communicate very, very easily with her. So in that same way, that, 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 that kind of jump that can happen existed between Ethiopia and me, but also my engagement with Ethiopia was really through my family, through mm. my, my, because we, because it was so complicated, our departure, leaving, how we, every, most of my family there that I would go was with my family, would visit relatives and my engagement with, wasn't with Addis on my own. As, and this, re, this trip really changed that because I was there as an artist, Ethiopians were really welcoming and, and the university students the academy several symposiums on your work for yeah, example we yeah did, and 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 re i really pushed the symposiums to actually be bigger in content about Addis as a city about the shift in that city so we really tried to have parts of you know we really tried to broaden that to be a much bigger conversation about the con contemporary state of, of of many things in, in ethiopia right now but it was great and i met fantastic artists and thinkers and architects and activists and professors and I it was able I was able to go there and and like anywhere else I think people when you're successful in the west and you can be a representative or an like in a sense an ambassador for that culture or they they claim you and they, they as their own because there's a certain type of nationalistic pride that comes from and that that existed but how to like engage with that in a way where you really what could make it about the work and not about the success of a particular kind of success, packaged su success. That was that was an interesting kind mm. of dynamic. But in general, it was really 
for me, super invigorating to be able to have this kind of my own relationship with Ethiopia as a woman who's out, who's making, who's, you know, and, and being who I was there, being able to do that there, not under. By out, you mean queer, not out of the country, yeah, I think. Queer. Yeah, queer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but just being, yeah. While you were in college, I think while you were at, at Kalamazoo College in Michigan, spent a year in Senegal, in Dakar. For listeners who aren't up on their African geography, those two countries are about as far away from each other as you can get east to west in Africa. <laughs> Dakar is Africa's westernmost city. Ethiopia is, is the second easternmost country in Africa. Somalia is to its east. Why Senegal? Senegal, because this was the time where we couldn't go back to Ethiopia. My family right, had right. gone to Zimbabwe. And I wanted, it's one of the reasons I went to the college I went. They had, a, they had one of the oldest and strongest Africa foreign study programs in Africa. And I was, since my family left and then since we went back to and spent a year living in Zimbabwe between middle school and high school, I did both part of most of eighth grade and part of ninth grade in Zimbabwe. Very formative time and that internationalist type of Africanist informed like world citizen that that information came to me really out during being there during those years. So I wanted to live somewhere on the continent. I knew I wanted to go back. Dakar had the longest program. Like Sierra, Le they had a program mm. in Sierra Leone and it was six months. They had a program in, in Tanzania or Kenya at the time and it was six months. But Dakar was a nine month full academic year program. So I took, so I studied French so I could do that. And, and Dakar, you know, Dakar, there was many other reasons to be attracted to Dakar. Its first president was a poet, like many, and so, you know, it was independent, you know, since it was, but right. yeah, I think it was, I became really, you know, Dakar is a magical place and it's places like that, that I'm really worried about in this new world, in this, in, in, in terms, like I traveled all through Mali then. Mali was incredibly mm. peaceful and beautiful and Sufi, Sufi informed Islam really informed this area and it was one of the most open places I have ever been, and it's really struggling with a different type of political social reality right now, which is which is devastating. To I have read, but maybe only in one reference, that you became exposed in some way to batik dyeing in <laughs> Senegal. You really did your research. <laughs> <laughs> and that you thought that that was, I don't know if important is the word, but maybe cool is the word, how were you exposed to it? What did you get out of it? I met these artists who were doing it, and I wanted to learn how to do it, and they taught me. And so I worked with them maybe, I don't know, five months or something, learning the process. And I made maybe 10 batiks, that big-scale batiks. Mm -hmm. But, mm -hmm. I mean, they're not, they weren't anything that I would think no, of. But, it's and, an but, but it was the language and engaging with these artists. And I would go to their studio, which was in this neighborhood, and I would we worked outside with, like, a hot fire, and the wax melted next to us, and I would lay out on the table and paint and they would come in and correct me <laughs> like that's not how you draw that so is it important that that was an engagement with an abstract tradition that wasn't morris lewis yeah i think it was important in in ways that i can i didn't know of then like i was just following an, an instinct but it informed so much of how i think and i think yeah i think so i think you're absolutely do you have any idea when you realized that i mean many years later two years later I think like sometimes when you're making the early, when you become a, a student who's, who becomes like very much more serious about what you're trying to make, a lot of the work where you're just investigating how art is made is you're copying. That's what you do a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. A lot of me early very making, academic idea. Yeah, is copying. <laughs> like like you're just learning, studying, copying, trying to make, trying to make, and trying to paint, trying to stain things. And so that was one of those periods. It's a form of copying. It was a form of, I wasn't inventing language then. I was just learning technique and learning how to do something. And so, and so I think it became part of that background, like that, like getting, becoming fluent at reading and understanding and, and, and being able to make. And so I think really when you, when I became much more comfortable with everything I've ever made, it's really as a much as a as a little bit of a more mature or older artist than when I than even right even at grad, in graduate school I would have been like I couldn't even wouldn't even be able to talk about anything. You're four <laughs> years older than me, so watch it. 
I don't mean, but I just mean, a, I just mean a slightly when you've been working for 20 years in yeah, a serious yeah, yeah. way, it's a different, you can, you can re- respect everything you've done and, and what you've learned in a very different way than totally. when I'm first inventing the language, when I was a first, when I was first out of graduate school, it was all like I was inventing something at that time. And okay. So in the American fine art tradition, in the American white fine art tradition, <laughs> there is a three generation ish history of abstraction as being an accepted thing, which is to say it's a youngish thing. In other world traditions, including some in what is now the United States, an acceptance of abstract tradition and traditions goes back a lot farther. Mm-hmm. Batik is part of that. Yeah. Was that a switch that, was that something you realized at some point? Did, did, did that, I don't know, chronology isn't the right word, but it's close. Did that chronology matter to you or validate, I, make no. more comfortable? No, because even the batik, like not like I think for me it's in in looking. I've constantly you you look and you really like you see what how what how many forms of language inform like who you are and the way you see and think and make and but you know I have to say like with the batik that that was going on around me and and with a lot of the batik that I was making it wasn't. It was much more about a prescriptive or a idea of what it should be. Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't. It wasn't like I was working with artists who were really pushing. Like I feel like that history and that tradition you're talking about even comes precedes a lot of this, almost the last forty, fifty years of what you'll see being made. In. So I think I think it's I think what you're talking about is something that comes way bef- like that has that trans that has transpired and informs work that we're excited about. From, you know, many from many continents, but I've looked at, and it's become more important to me now in the last five, ten years, rather than then when I was younger. I'd like to ask about one of the paintings you showed in Ethiopia this past summer. It's dated 2015. It's a painting called "Conjured Parts Tongues." We'll have an image on manpodcast.com. You know, we talked three years ago about specific mark making and specific passages and specific paintings a lot, so. We're doing less of that this time, but I got to ask about a mark in this painting. And it's an X, a big X in the lower left-ish part of the painting. Where does the X come from? It's such an old glyph symbol mark. It comes from so many places. But where I started to really use it in the work is after I went to New Orleans. And you would see... I don't know if it was an X or if it was the a cross, but you would no, you'd see the X on the houses that were searched. As in uh, they Richard Mizrock's photos uh, after the flood, yeah, yeah, and you'd see them on the houses and that painting on the house. It was spray paint usually, and then actually the X is a is a is something that is underlying construct in my in my painting and drawing for a long time, and the marks would kind of coalesce into forms of X's. Sometimes that happens to them. And I think it also has to do with a fundamental fig- form of figuration or the reach or like you, you kind of, I don't know, somehow the X has been always in, like uh, subliminally in the work. It's there. But that, that mark and kind of using that mark, especially with the spray paint, that started to come into my paintings or into my, my mind after, I, after New Orleans. And I still... It, 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 I think you'll find something like that in almost all the paintings. But that's one of the sources. The other, the other is it's a, it's a cross that sits in space in a certain way, and so it's it's also a very I think an early abstract symbol for a human, like in a way. It just yeah. has it's like the four limbs. It's somehow. a it's a cruciform ish. A cruciform, yeah, exactly. And so there's something about that. Switching gears, the Met invited you to participate in their The Artist's Project, by which artists are invited to pick an object in the Met's collections and to talk about it for five or six minutes. You picked the great Diego Velasquez portrait of Juan de Perea. We'll have an image of it, of course, and we'll have a link on on the website to your, well, not a link, we'll embed it, to your five minutes or whatever it was. And you spoke about how Juan was a slave, a slave to Velasquez, and you wondered about what it meant or how it worked, or why Velasquez gave such painterly life to a slave, to his facial features. I mean, it's an extremely detailed, it's one of his you know, best portraits, really. And, and, and if all the various dating is accurate, just to give 
people some context. Velazquez did free Juan, but it was two or three years after making this painting. He freed him in Rome, not in Spain. Why did you pick that painting? You know, I was trying to think, when you're asked to do something like that, the Met is one of the best museums, right, in the world, and you're like going there or... And I love this museum, and there's so much that I look at. And Sarah, who works in my studio, she kept telling me, Julie, just go to the Met and you go one day and just, like, choose something. And, and, and <laughs> I was just like, how am I going to do that? Like, it felt like this. And they it had postponed it. It was supposed to do it the year before, and I postponed it. And then it was coming up. The date was coming up. And I when, I, when I had actually gone to the Met, it was to look at particular things. or look at. So I just, the day that before I was, two days or three days before I was supposed to do this, I thought... What are the paintings that have like, and that portrait has always stood out to me. And I wanted to look into, and I was thinking, yeah, like I, this is a painter who I've really, th- those galleries, I look at them, I, I go through them a lot, but that portrait always stood out to me. And yeah. so I picked something by memory and, 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 and a work that haunted me. And, and it was a work that I always go to visit, but it was a work that also, that was complicated. Like because of, but it's a painting that like you can't help but like you get really excited about. And there's many of those. It's not just that one, but there's the Goyas with the the, um, the balcony, the the Goya of the portrait of the little boy who died with a bird. With the bird on a leash, I with think. The bird right? on a leash, right? And there's certain paintings that just stay like that. You go back and visit as much as you can, and they and they're they're favorites. And Wanda Perry, that portrait was a, was one of those paintings and I remember reading about looking into it then and being and being struck by the expression in the face and how how do you paint like to the humanity you see in that and the mouth and the light and the expression everything how do you see that when this person is your slave like his, really his mouth is open just slightly which yeah. is a remarkable detail in the picture I mean it's this a really humanistic yeah, yeah. yeah. like you can almost feel that yes. and 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 it makes and and that's when painting shifts right right that's when like when we were talking about figure painting that can deal with both sides of that coin and do what that to me was is it 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 was just and to think you know I've read different accounts one is that he yeah. freed him and then I've also read that it was the king of Spain who saw some of his painting in his studio and he didn't want him to paint supposedly but Velasquez, he would paint you mean, Velasquez didn't want, him to didn't paint, want right? it. and he but he he insisted on painting and painted and he hung up por- a portrait and or painting in, when the king was visiting and he said someone who can paint like this should never be a slave and so Velasquez had to free him. That's one story. The other story, I mean, but I don't know what is. I'm not a historian, and I, only I, know I what my I understanding find. is that we don't know. We don't know. So we don't know what. I think we do know that the the, the Juan was freed in Rome. I think that's the that. Part yeah, we do know. and and so he was freed, but you know, the re- the reality is for those years he was his slave, yeah, yeah. and for most of his life, and that's an in, that's just intense, and that he was able to paint something so moving. So something that's in that painting, because of, and maybe this is the historian or critic in me talking, so feel free to shoot it down. Something that's in that painting that is in your work, dominant theme of your work, is globalism. The network's created by globalism and finding ways to represent that. Juan's life, both his enslavement and his being freed in Rome, were products of the globalism of that century. Was that, of, was that something that interested you? Yeah, but I think that's the history of, like, enslaved people that's why i'm at yeah, yeah. That's why I'm and so yeah i mean to me it was the 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 deep contradiction of owning a human being and the the dehumanization of somebody to to be able to do that you have to really think of them as other and mm-hmm. as inhuman in a way or which is maybe why you free them in rome instead of at home yeah maybe to get them farther away or if, so that you don't you aren't confronted with that on a daily basis back in the office <laughs> I don't know, you know, and and that even that concept of like being able to think of another human being and not really in, in essence dehumanizing them, it's that contradiction that as an artist, no matter what intuitively underneath it all, he was able to do this. I mean, he was preparing for a very ma- important commission and an important portrait and was trying to get it right. So there's and there are real human relationships that take place, even with enslaved and people and their owners that 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 is something that has been investigated in history and those stories have been told so to me that was what i think intrigued me the most that 
I don't know that if, as a painter, he, he tried, or as an artist, he was trying to make, to do what he could do with what he ended up doing with that portrait. But how he how how he treated that painting and what happens in that painting, like I still get goosebumps thinking about it. Like it does that to you, and to me that 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 could happen when you uh, you can't possibly think it's okay. There's nothing okay about that situation, and you can't. But yet at the same time, you he clearly did, and then. He showed his uh, the other side of that at the same t- at the same moment, and that's what intrigued me the most. Julie Maritou, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. It's been it's been wonderful. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.